0: All right. God bless you guys good to see you can I have you can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1? I think last week we got down to verse eight so let's pick it up there where Paul said first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world now, Once again, to remind you that this dynamic church wasn't started by an apostle or a big-name believer in any way. It was started by some ordinary folks, probably Jews, that had come to Pentecost for that uh, feast, which was one of the three major Jewish feasts of the year. And uh, that was the Pentecost that the Spirit was poured out, the church was born. Peter gave a dynamic message uh, and 3,000 men got saved, plus young people and women. We know there were some Jews from Rome there that day because Acts 2, verse 10 tells us so. <clears throat> so they got saved, filled with the Spirit, went back to Rome, and started a church. In other words, guys, this church wasn't a plant from any other church. It was a total and spontaneous work of the Holy Spirit, just like this church. We were not planted by anybody else 41 42 years ago, God just started it. Kind of amazing what he did. Uh, Didn't have much to work with, but here we are. Uh, Let me just say this to you. Um, Every work of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of churches out there that are not works of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? He leaves them alone because they're doing the devil's work already. But every work of the Holy Spirit, every church raised up and is being used by god the devil is going to use whatever means and is at his disposal to to squash he's going to attack and try to squash what god is doing it was no different in rome sorry i swallowed some stuff in my throat uh history records that in 49 a.d so that would be eight years before paul wrote this epistle 49 AD, the Roman government under Emperor Claudius banished the Jews from Rome. The Roman historian Suetonius writes that Claudius banished uh, the Jews from Rome because they were, and I'm quoting now, indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Crestus. Crestus. Now, there have been many attempts to explain who Crestus was. But there is no record of anyone at that time bearing that name. Now, a likely solution is that he, Suetonius, was referring to Christos, Christ. But writing some 70 years after the events had the name somewhat mixed up. Well, historian and scholar F.F. F. Bruce, who was not mixed up, very brilliant guy, he said, and I quote, it seems that the expulsion expulsion had to do with dissension and disorder within the Jewish community of Rome, resulting from the introduction of Christianity into one or more of the synagogues of the city, quote. And so Claudius had the Jews banished from Rome, which forced Jewish believers in Jesus to leave the city as well. This turned a predominantly Jewish fellowship or a church in Rome to a Gentile church as the Jews were now uh, expelled from the city. And Paul mentions that uh, in his introduction, uh, talking about other Gentiles, uh, because he wants to come to the city that is a church that is Gentiles in its nature and uh, character, and uh, he wants to be a blessing to uh, other Gentiles that he has ministered to around the uh, known world. But... um, It's just interesting that as these Jewish believers in Christ were expelled from the city with all the other Jews, uh, they went out in every direction from Rome, taking the gospel with them to new places and new people. You know, sometimes events that seem bad are really being used by God for good, for the spread of the gospel. Now, this very thing happened 25 years earlier in Jerusalem. You read about that in Acts chapter 8. Uh, and it led eventually to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9. Turn to uh, Acts 7. Let's just read the last couple of verses. Acts 7, verse 59. You remember that Acts 7 deals with Stephen being brought before the Sanhedrin. And um, after he recounted uh, Jewish history, uh to their leaders, uh, to you know, to the Jewish leadership. Um, and then he nails them uh, by saying, you stiff-necked and hard-hearted, you always resist the Holy Spirit, even as your fathers did, so do you. But they didn't like that, okay? So they rushed at him, dragged him outside, and stoned him to death, verse 59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, or he died in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin. He cast his vote for Stephen's stoning. So he was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. So God allowed the persecution to get the uh, believers out of their comfort zone. Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they had stuck in Jerusalem, and they were kind of enjoying the fellowship. So God allowed persecution to arise, which forced them out of their comfort zone. Sometimes God will allow things to happen that, On the face of it, look bad, and what is God doing? But actually, God is trying to use us in greater ways, uh, develop our witness to a greater extent, and ultimately to get the gospel to more people. So, verse 9, Romans 1, verse 9, Paul said, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Let me stop there. You have to understand, um, you have to understand Paul, and uh, you know that Paul was um, raised by a Pharisee father. Paul himself, or Saul, I should say, became a Pharisee uh, eventually. And be, he was a sincere guy. He was uh, a uh, sincere Pharisee. Nicodemus was another good Pharisee. The Pharisees numbered about 6,000 men during the time of Christ. And I think the vast majority were, were you know, they, they were very legalistic, of course. Um, but a lot of them were hypocrites. Paul saw this. All right? He saw the hypocrisy. Um, so many Pharisees were just hypocrites. Uh, So much uh, done in the name of religion uh, that was superficial and artificial. Nothing more than, you know, corrupt, we would say, religiosity. In fact, they contained the same spirit uh, back then that dominates so much of what goes on in religious circles today. Nothing more than professional, pure professional hucksterism. Peter warned us about those who would make merchandise off of God's people who are just in it for the bucks. And boy, we see them everywhere today, right? But Paul knew that not all service, and remember now, he had never met these folks, they had never met him. So, you know, he had to introduce himself, and he's still kind of introducing himself here, before he gets into verse 18, which begins the first main uh, portion of this letter to the Romans. Right now, we've dealt with the introduction, and the personal, he's introducing himself after he speaks Doctrinally, he shares his heart now. But uh, Paul knew that not all service for God was pure and sincere. He knew that. He knew that much of it was motivated by legalism, by greed, of course, and by blatant self-interest rooted in a desire for prestige, power, and self—or excuse me, personal glory. Prestige, power, and personal glory. That's why a lot of people get into religion uh, in the way of religious leadership. Uh, that's why a lot of people get into politics. There's a lot of folks that love attention. They love the praise of men. Whether you're a politician or whether you're uh, you know, religious in nature, uh, there's a lot of phonies out there. Now Paul, uh, in contrast to this, Paul wanted them to know where his heart was as a servant of God. And so he said, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Now, we use spirit in much the same way as Paul uses it here. In athletics, we talk about spirited play. Spirited play, as in lively and motivated with passion. Doing it with all your heart. The Greek word for service in verse 9 is litreo, a word that is used in the New Testament only of religious service to God. Frequently, this Greek word is translated worship. Worship. In fact, it's interesting that in the New Testament, this word is used to describe both service and worship to God. I won't have you turn to it. You probably don't have an NASB 95 with you tonight. But the NASB 95, Romans 12:1 is translated this way. Therefore, I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies, which means the sum total of your whole life, that's Paul's way of saying that, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, listen, which is your spiritual service of worship. So there the translators tried to bring out the full um, meaning of that word. It's, It's always used of service to God, uh, but so often, service to God uh, is being offered to Him as a form of worship, and so it is. Uh, it is a form of worship. I think the greatest worship uh, that you can give God, and that is giving Him your your life in service to Him as a living sacrifice. The greatest form of of worship. But understand, if our service for God is going to be truly is going to truly be worship, I mean, holy and acceptable, right? Uh, it has to be done out of the right heart and with the right motives. Now, Paul is 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 um, intimating that, that when he talks about serving God out of the right heart, he wants them to understand that his service to God on their behalf uh, is rooted in his love for God, his desire to honor and glorify God, not in any personal... Um, you know, he's not trying to get rich. He's not trying to get praise for men. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3. I think this subject is big enough and important enough. Let's deal with it for just a little bit. 1 Corinthians 3. And I want to pick it up in verse 9. Where Paul <clears throat> said, <clears throat> verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds. For no other foundation can any one lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw... Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire." What is Paul talking about? Well, let me just say this. The day is going to come when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and our work we did for him is going to be tested. Not the quantity, but the quality of the work we did for him. Understand, guys, that the fire does not test the worker. Did you see that in verse 13? The fire does not test the worker, and I say that because the Roman Catholic Church uses this passage to teach purgatory. But they've got it wrong. This is not Paul talking about how the fire is going to test the worker. He's talking about how the fire will test their work or workmanship. The distinction isn't between the lost and the saved. But between the faithful saved and the unfaithful saved. In other words, between those who built well and those who built poorly or who didn't build at all. What am I talking about? Serving God. You know, once we get saved, we are now a servants of the Most High God, and everything we do, um, you know, for the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's done out of the right motives, um, will be rewarded for. Uh, you know, but there are Christians who, I, I, maybe you've heard them say, "Well, I, I just want to, I just want to be saved. I, I just want to go to heaven." Okay, well that's great. You've accept, accepted Christ. You know, you're going to heaven. But don't you want to have anything on that day to lay at His feet, or any rewards that you're going to receive for all eternity? No, no, I just just want to make sure I'm saved. You see, the Bema Seat Judgment, which is being talked about here, 1 Corinthians 3, 9-15, to for Christians isn't a punitive judgment. Now, when I was young in the faith, my pastor and many other pastors used to say that the Bema Seat Judgment is only for believers, and it's not punitive. It's where people, Christians, receive their rewards um you know so it's like the uh um, judges seat at the olympics the athletes come forward to receive their awards if first second third place that kind of thing but it's only for christians it's only for believers well then i did a little research you got to be careful what you assume is true um you know a lot of things over the years, non essential things, but a lot of things I accepted uh, without really doing a, a due diligence and doing my homework. Again, not anything that deals with salvation, just side issues. This is one of them. I discovered that this language is used in the book of Acts for um, judgments that were secular, and they were um Judgments that carried with them uh, penalties—they were punitive. But for the most part, when—not for the most part—in all situations, when Christians stand before the bema seat, this is going to happen at the rapture. When the rapture happens, we're all going to stand before the bema seat to receive our rewards. Revelation talks about how that Jesus, Jesus Himself said, "I am coming quickly." and my reward is with me. And I believe he's talking about the rapture, and the first thing that's going to happen once we get rapture, we're going to receive our rewards, and then sit down to the marriage supper of the Lamb while the tribulation period is raging on the earth. All right? But those who stand before Jesus on that day as believers, okay, um, they've already made it into heaven. This is not a punitive judgment. This is not like some christians believe this is the final test and you could lose your salvation even here if you don't measure up well that's salvation by works right what do you mean if i don't measure up well if you don't what do enough good works that's not what the bible says about the gospel no no you know when the rapture happens all the people that stand before the beam of seat of christ are going to be believers obviously because only believers go in the rapture right and um at that, point, at that point, they've all made it into heaven where this judgment takes place. But understand, for many Christians, this will not be a time of great rejoicing. Another thing I've heard over the years. Oh, it's going to be fantastic. When we stand before the Lord, the beam of seed, it's going to be a glorious time. I don't think so. For a lot, it will be. For many others, it won't be. It's not going to be a time of great rejoicing for all believers. It's going to be a time of great sorrow for many. Why is that? Because they have nothing to show for their life on the earth, spiritually speaking. I mean, they live worthless, wasted lives during their time on earth, spiritually speaking. I'm sure they had a great time. There are Christians, you know, who go to church because they love to network with people. It helps their business. I've had people leave our church to go to a bigger church because he wanted to network with people. There are Christians who enjoy their, you know, country club membership. A lot of them play golf on Sundays when they can, which means they don't go to church. There's a lot of carnal Christians. Some of them have laid up vast amounts of treasures on the earth but have nothing in heaven, nothing in heaven. They've wasted their lives, pretty much spiritually speaking, and therefore they're going to receive little if any rewards on that day. You know, many would say at this point, "Well, that's not fair. I wasn't able to get out, uh, you know, and go to church and serve the Lord. I was shut in." Or, you know, as a young mom, I was always watching the little ones, and now as a grandmother, I'm watching my kids, kids. So how can God, you know, how how can I really? Get out there like a missionary and what and serve God. The greatest ministry you can ever do for God is prayer. Amen. It's prayer. Any any of us can do that. You all heard of Corey Tenboom, right? We uh we, we read her book is one of our books of the quarter, The Hiding Place. When Corey got up in age, now I think she was living in California at this time, but she was now up in age and she was very ill but kind of bedridden at this point point. and uh, my pastor pastor chuck smith went to visit her and he talked with her for a little bit as she was in bed and he said "Corey, you can enter into the greatest minister you've ever had prayer you you don't have to be, be mobile to pray and i would imagine she took that to heart because she was a very godly woman she might have had the most fruitful years of our entire life in that hospital, praying to God. But listen, a big part of the judgment of that day, the day we stand before Jesus, the Bema Seat, is going to be to reveal whether Christian's service was self-directed or spirit-directed. And did they serve for his glory or theirs? I mean, what was the motivation in their heart when they served Jesus? Only God knows, and is going to reveal it on that day. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels, the motives of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. God knows the hearts. In fact, he knows the hearts better than we know our own heart, right? He knows what motivated us to do what we do for him. And he's going to reveal it on that day. So make sure your heart is right. Make sure you serve the Lord out of the right heart, whatever you do. But God only recognizes and only rewards work done in the spirit. You remember uh, how that, um, when, when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, right? The child he had waited for for so many years, the son of promise. He said, I want you to take a three days journey and offer him there on Mount Moriah. He said, take your son, your what? Only son. What happened to Ishmael? Ishmael was a work of the flesh. God does not recognize the works of the flesh. It's like they never happened. Make sure your motives are right. Make sure when you serve Jesus it's because you love him and want to see him glorified, not because you want to see people praising you. Right? Now, as we've said many times, uh, the church started out as a work of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, Acts 2, right? But has in so many ways devolved over the years into a work of the flesh. Where the early church depended on the Holy Spirit to lead them, guide them, empower them. They made no effort without praying. Again, that famous Tozer quote, uh, A.W. Tozer quote, if the Holy Spirit was removed from the early church, 90% of what they did would have come to a halt. If the Holy Spirit was removed from the church today, 10% of what is being done would come to a halt. That's probably about right. So one of the reasons the church has become so ineffective is because we have placed more and more confidence in in ourselves, in our programs, in our you know, pastors and leaders, their their theological degrees, and so on. Always a mistake. So Paul said, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his Son. Guys, and I, we're just kind of repeating some of the things we've already studied, but only the true gospel of God, gospel means good news, only the true gospel of God is good news, because only the gospel, the true gospel of God saves. Now the Bible said, Jesus himself, said that the closer we got to his return, the more the lies, the more the deception would increase. And this has come into the church as well. Uh, because the church has kind of gotten away from, you know, sola scriptura, where we just look at the Bible as being everything we need for life and godliness, and has gotten into other things. You know, I mean, the wisdom of man, psychology, and uh, even Eastern mysticism. Like in contemplative prayer and other things. But we see a lot of f- false gospels in the church of Jesus Christ in these last days. Uh, people that deny he's God. The bo- who deny the bodily resurrection. Um, of course, these are cults, but you hear some people say, look, it's not important what you believe, only that you believe, right? You've maybe you heard that. Well, of course it matters what you believe because you have to believe the gospel, the true gospel, if you're going to be saved. You can believe a lie with all your heart. Uh, you know, we'll take it out of, out of the Christian context and put it into... The uh, Muslim context. You can't deny that Muslim young guys who are blowing themselves up in crowded marketplaces or flying airplanes into buildings, you can't deny that their faith uh, is sincere. These guys really believe what they believe. I mean, you can't you lay down your life for what you believe. I think we can all say you're serious. But there is a way that seems right to a man, right? In the end thereof is what? the way of death. You can believe a lie with all your heart is still a lie. It will not save you. That's what we need to... in these. La- and Satan has flooded the zone in these last days with all kinds of false doctrine, heresy, and so on. How do we guard against it? Well, you study the Word of God verse by verse. The only way you're going to get the whole counsel of God, the only way you're going to be kept as much as possible... From false teaching is look at everything in its context in the Word of God. And if you study it verse by verse, you're going to see everything in its context. I love topical teaching. I love to listen to topical teachers. I do topical teaching as I'm working my way through a, a book of the Bible uh, verse by verse. You can camp on a passage and turn it into a little topical series and you move on. Nothing wrong with that. But if you only go to a church that teaches topically, it's too easy for a pastor. I'm not saying he's trying to deceive anybody. I'm just saying sometimes they are, but not always. Um, Maybe he himself is misled. But if you only go to a a church that only teaches topically, um, you're not going to always get the context. And context is everything. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, how how can you understand the Bible uh, in truth? You got to, context is everything. You got to see everything in its context. And uh, that's the only way you're going to keep yourself from error. So, we are living in the last days. A lot of false gospels are being floated out there. Uh, But the true gospel, the gospel of God is a person. A person. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good news. He is, Christianity is the only religion that is not made up of a, 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 a bunch of principles, right? That doesn't need their leader to preach those principles. You don't have to Moh- remove Muhammad from Muhammadism, everything stays the same. You don't need Muhammad. To teach what he taught. Anybody could teach those things, right? Same thing with Buddha, Confucius. You could remove these leaders from these religions and nothing would change. Because those religions are not dependent upon their leaders. Upon their teachings, but not upon them personally. But if you remove Jesus Christ from Christianity, Christianity ceases to exist. He is the word. He is the truth. You can't have Christianity without Christ. So he is the good news. God who became man and died in our place as payment for our sins. That's the gospel. Again, the gospel of God isn't a set of moral principles. Not that we don't have moral principles. There, there. I'm saying it's not a matter of moral principles for salvation. It's not a codified set of religious laws that if obeyed will get you as a fallen sinner into heaven. It's all about you. Folks, (laughs) That's the gospel of legalism rooted in the flesh. That's not good news. That's bad news. The gospel, the true gospel, is the gospel of grace in Christ. And it is good news. All right, back to Romans 1, verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing... I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now, when you read Paul's epistles, one of the things you come away with is that he really believed in the power of prayer. He really believed in the power of prayer. And throughout the history of the church, we see those who, like Paul, really understood how powerful prayer is, and how essential it is for the work of God to be accomplished. Let me give you a few examples. I, I had these that I've been saving. Uh, I'll read them to you. There's so many others we could look at, but let me just give you a flavor of what I'm talking about. One article goes like this one author shared this story. Some years ago, a young girl was very sick and not expected to recover. Because of her love for Jesus, she was troubled that she had not been able to to do more for him in her short life. Her pastor suggested that she make a list of people in in their little, little town who needed Christ and pray that they might put their faith in him. She took his advice, made a list, and prayed often for each person. Sometime later, God began to stir a revival in that village. The girl heard of people who were coming to Christ and prayed even more. As she heard reports, she checked off the names of those who had been led to the Lord. After the girl died, a prayer list with the names of 56 people was found under her pillow. All had put their faith in Christ, the last one on the night before her death. Such is the power of definite, specific, fervent prayer. The author ends by saying, do you have a prayer list? We all should. In his biography of Evangelist D.L. Moody, author Lyle Dorsett uh, relates the following story of God's amazing faithfulness. It was the spring of 1862, and the Civil War had taken its toll on troops and citizens alike. Evangelist D.L. Moody was frequently seen on the battlefields ministering to soldiers on the front line. During one instance late at night after a weary day at war, uh, the party of Christian workers was walking among the body strewn fields searching for survivors. The hundreds of men they, they came upon were wounded and famished, and a search of the area produced little nourishment for the weary men. Desperate the small band of workers gathered together asking God to provide the needed supplies. Later, tells Dorset, some workers admitted that they admitted that they were doubtful God would respond. As the first gleam of morning light rose uh, above the battlefield, a wagon appeared on the horizon. As it approached the workers, they realized it was a large farm wagon piled high with loaves of bread. God had provided manna from heaven. The driver approached the men and told the following story. He said, When I went to bed last night, I knew it, I knew the army was gone and I could not sleep for thinking of the poor fellows who were wounded and would have uh, would have to stay behind. Something seemed to whisper in my ear, What will those poor fellows do for something to eat? I could not get rid of this voice. That faithful servant of God could not sleep, so he woke his wife, and she began break, baking as much bread as possible. Meanwhile, he hitched up his wagon and called on his neighbors to gather additional food. Said the man, I felt just as if I was being sent by our Lord himself, end quote. And certainly he was. You've all heard the name Charles Finney, great revivalist, right? Finney said, and everywhere he went, revival broke out. Incredible man of God. He said, I have never known a person sweat blood, but I have known a person pray till blood started to flow from their nose. I have known persons pray till they were all wet with perspiration in the coldest weather in winter. I have known persons pray for hours till their strength was all exhausted with the agony of their minds. Such prayers prevailed with God. This agony and prayer was prevalent in Jonathan Edwards' day in the revivals which then took place. Well, they were also present in Finney's day. What you may not realize Six weeks before Finney was to go into an area to preach. You know, we, we, we give this credit to guys like Finney. Wow, they were incredible preachers. That's why God used them. What you may not know is that six weeks before Finney was scheduled to go into an area to begin a series of, of campaigns and preaching the gospel, he dispatched two people. One was Daniel Nash and I don't know if Daniel had a partner or if he would call upon anyone else. Daniel Nash was the lead guy. He and another guy would go into town, and they would uh, rent um, a a room somewhere. Uh, This one time I heard they rented a root cellar, and they would go down there, and they would pray all day into the night, every day. The one old farm woman who owned this farm Said as she walked by the root cellar, you know, she heard these men crying out, uh, agonizing in prayer. So that by the time Finney got there, and began to preach, the spirit of God was so heavy that, from what I have read, taverns thirty miles away would close down, as men in those taverns would fall on their faces and began to confess their sins before God. Nothing is done without the power of prayer. Another Christian author said this with regard to prayer. He said, and I quote, We refuse to to so strive and should not be surprised at the lack of God's mighty stirrings. Is it not amazing that we have no problem with people wearing themselves out in sports for pleasure, work for money, politics for power, and programs for charity? But think it fanatical to so pray for souls. We would die for national freedom, but never for our progress in the kingdom of God. Is it any wonder we see so little of God's great working today? Now that was not true of Paul the Apostle. He was a true prayer warrior. Listen to what he said in verse 9 again. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make what? Mention of you always in my prayers. I appreciate that Paul said uh, he makes mention of these people in his prayers. Look, not all prayers need to be lengthy and detailed for God to hear them and answer. It is appropriate sometimes to make mention of people in our prayers since God knows everything anyways. He knows what they need. You don't have to explain it to God. I just love it when I'm in a prayer meeting and somebody's explaining to God. They're going on for 10 minutes. I'm like, just shoot me now. I'm thinking, God knows. Could you just get to it? Right? Now listen, not all of our prayers are mentioned quickly to God kind of prayers. There are prayers that require us to get on our faces before God and pour our hearts out fervently like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the cross. I don't know if we'll ever sweat drops of blood like he did, but I know there are times when we need to pray fervently. You say, well, one of those times, God will tell you. I don't have to explain it. God will tell you. But Paul was a prayer warrior, is the point. And one of my favorite examples of Paul's prayers for believers comes out of Ephesians chapter 3. You want to turn there? This is one of my all-time favorite prayers in the Bible. Ephesians 3, starting with verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, the family of God, that he would grant you, now he's praying for the Ephesian Christians, and, but for all of us really, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. One great prayer warrior said this in a book I read years ago. The problem with the church today and why there is such a lack of power is you got too many leaders in the boardroom organizing instead of in the prayer room agonizing. I think he nailed it. Samuel Chadwick said in the early 1900s, The church that multiplies committees and neglects prayer may be fussy, noisy, enterprising, but it labors in vain and spends its strength for naught. It is possible to excel in mechanics and fail in dynamics. There is an abundance of machinery. What is lacking is power. The story goes years ago that three young seminary students showed up on the church steps of the London Metropolitan Tabernacle Church, the church the great Spurgeon pastored. They had always heard about Spurgeon, but had never met him. Didn't even know what he looked like. But they're waiting and talking before church. You got there early. They're excited. I don't know, maybe an hour before, and they're just standing on the steps talking to each other. When suddenly a man appears from around the corner and uh, sees the young men standing there and uh, finds out that they were seminary students. And he asks them, Would you like to see the power plant of this church? Now, these young guys thought this guy was the janitor. It was, it was Spurgeon. And they didn't want to be rude. So, okay, yeah, show us the power plant of the church. Took them around the side of the building, down a set of stair, staircase, into the basement of the church, where 700 Christians were on their knees praying. This happened every week. Spurgeon said that church enjoyed 20 straight years of revival. That was truly the power plant of the church. Spurgeon was a gifted preacher, no doubt about it. But he would never have had the impact on London and around that part of the world without the prayers. I don't think Finney would have been as great a revivalist without Daniel Nash. I think there's a lot of people, a lot of people that are prayer warriors. You, know, you think of Anna in Luke chapter 2, right? Um, 36, 7, eight, somewhere around there. Anna. You, we would never have known of this Jewish precious saint if the Holy Spirit hadn't just almost, you know, in passing mentions her. It says... She lived in the temple, in the temple, around the Holy of Holies in the temple, you know, where we think of the uh, holy place and the Holy of Holies. uh, There were apartments and there were people that, uh, Levites and all, that would live there while they served the Lord uh, for their two weeks out of the year because there was too many for them all to serve at once. And apparently she was so well known by the leadership, the Jewish leadership, that they let her have a small, probably very simple apartment. Maybe it just had a bed and a table and a little oil-burning lamp, and that was probably it. And it says that she served the Lord day and night with fastings and prayer. Don't tell me I, I, I don't have the opportunity to serve God. So it's not fair that he doesn't reward me. My prayer is that God would give our church an outpouring of God's spirit, a spirit of prayer and intercession, that we find ourselves burdened to pray. And that burden will increase as our heart for the lost increases. And so we need that. We need that. Pray for that. Verse 10. Again, where Paul said, making request to the Lord if by some means I might find a way to come to you, listen, in the will of God, making request of the Lord, if I might come to you come to you based on his will, right? What did John say first John 5 fourteen and fifteen he said, Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him, in God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Every prayer that we pray has to pass through the grid of God's sovereign will. This idea that if I just have enough faith, God becomes the servant, And I'm the master, and I can order God around. If I just had enough faith, that is not biblical. Not biblical. Turn to Matthew 6 as we bring this to a close. Maybe we can slip off into the kids' ministry and ask them to stop (laughs) jumping from the tables, whatever they're doing in there. I can hear them over here. All right. All right. Matthew 6, starting with verse 5, uh, really uh, was Jesus teaching because his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Okay? And so verse 5, he said, when you're talking to his disciples, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on the street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they will ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. And then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you, and that is openly. When you pray, don't babble on and on as the Gentiles do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Verse 9. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, may your kingdom come soon, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's been, uh, it's been well said. Prayer is a mighty instrument. Listen. Not forgetting man's will done in heaven, but forgetting God's will done on earth. We never direct God. We pray so that, being in the presence of God, our heart will become His. Uh, his heart will become our heart, and we will pray for the things that He loves, and hate the things He hates. Of course, um, but a lot of people believe that prayer is really, if I can just word it, you got got Christians who fancy themselves as salesmen. And they're going to sell God on on this thing I need. I'm going to explain it to them. Now, Lord, here's why you need to give me this. Right? You just listen to me now, Lord. I I make a good case for why you should do this for me. Uh, That's a person who doesn't really He's not very mature in his walk with the Lord. You've all heard the name Ruth Bell Graham? Everybody here? Of course you have. One author said, Ruth Bell Graham has said she is glad God did not listen to her foolish demands in her younger years. Or she would have married the wrong guy 15 times. But she ended her prayers wisely by saying, not my will, but thy will be done. The author says, how do you pray? Do you pray in simplicity, Father, thy will be done? Or do you pray with a demanding mentality, you listen to me, God, I want this. For us to pray as Jesus taught, we must believe in the character and wisdom of our Heavenly Father, that he loves us and wants to do the best for us, and that his will is perfect. All right, let's stop there, and we'll pick it up. Verse 10 next time, and uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it feeds us, directs us, blesses us, and empowers us. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to bless these studies in your word, giving us grace to remember what we've learned tonight. A lot of great principles we need to apply. Give us grace to do that. And that, Lord, we would always know that you are the master and I am the servant and never the other way around. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies for your glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen.